Well, hello everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. No matter how you found us, we are so glad that you are here. Here at Menlo Church, we believe that everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything is possible. So let's go ahead and jump into today's message. Love to me is unconditional empathy or care for something or someone. Giving to others to help them feel loved. Caring more about others than you do yourself. Love is about helping uh, somebody feel valued in the moment. Taking care of other people, putting other people first. It's a total giving and not being self-involved. Being preoccupied about anything outside of myself. This, this is, is the, the product, product of love. love. It feels just a little R-rated for church, but let's go with it. Well, good morning. Yeah. We are finishing up our series on 1 Corinthians 13, and we're going to be looking at the last few verses in this chapter where Paul both reiterates and expands his desperate attempt to get this church, this 1 Corinthians church, to pay attention to how important love is. First uh, Corinthians 13, this passage is listed by many commentators as being the most misunderstood and misused passage in the entire New Testament. The good news is great learning happens when you realize you've got a word in your mind and you don't really understand it rightly and you don't really understand the depth of it. So I think the potential we have here this morning to understand love is huge. This church was a mess. Sexual sins, pride, divisions, idols. And what Paul is asking for here in this chapter is for them to understand that he's not looking for behavioral modification. He's not looking for external change to comply. He's looking for an internal shift where they really understand God's love in a deep way so that the behaviors change as a result. So we're going to look at these last few verses, and we're going to start off by reading them out loud together. And here's what I want to do. I'm going to have the right-hand side of the sanctuary stand in just a minute, and you're going to read the first slide that comes up. You're going to stay standing, and then the left-hand side is going to join them in standing, and you'll read the second slide, and then we'll stay standing and read the last verse all together. Is that pretty clear? I am known for my lack of clarity, so I'm just hoping that that's clear enough. All right, right-hand side, if you would stand up. And let's read together these last few verses. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. All right, this side. Let's join and... When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Have a seat. 
So let's look at what Paul is trying to communicate with these last few verses in this crescendo chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians 13. The first thing Paul is trying to get us to understand is that love is supreme. That there's something that happens when you get to the essence or the internal center of something. You find its intrinsic nature, which is the indispensable quality of something that determines its very character. And what Paul is saying in so many ways is that at the center of who God is, is not his holiness. At the center of who God is, is not his omnipotence or his omniscience. At the center, the core of who God is, is love. And everything else emanates out from that. That when you strip away what is non-essential from anything and you dig deep enough to find out what is irreducible in the universe, in the nature of God, it is love. Um, if I could have shown you many years ago uh, my bedroom when I graduated from college, I had at the top of one of my shelves on the dresser a little tiny two-inch glass jar with a black screw top lid on it. And I kept that for many years. I got it when I was eight years old, but that was still on my dresser when I was in my early 20s. It was a tiny little bottle filled with gold flakes from Knott's Berry Farm. I grew up in Los Angeles. For those of you that don't know that area as well, it's a poor man's version of Disneyland with a highly Western theme. There are cowboys, there are covered wagons. And that day when I was eight years old, my dad promised me at the end of our day at Knott's Berry Farm, after Knott's chicken and berry jam on top of the biscuits and all the rides and the cowboy shootouts, we were going to pan for gold before we left to go home. And so, as an eight-year-old kid, for the way I was wired, that was what I was waiting for all day long. And when we got to the end of the day, we walked over to that part, and then we stood in front of a wooden sluice with about six or seven other people. And there were some experts from Knott's Berry Farm teaching us how to fill our pan up with dirt. And when you looked at the dirt, you could not see anything of value in it. And they taught us slowly over time if we would allow the water to come in and move the pan in a certain way. And if we could be patient, which is not an eight-year-old's forte, that over time what we would be left with was gold. And I remember it like it was yesterday. It felt like magic. Moving this around and seeing nothing but dirt and then over time getting little glimpses of the glitter and pretty soon the man taking the pan from me and taking the leftover flakes and putting them inside that bottle because what we had done is we had gone through everything that obscured and competed with that gold and we found what was most valuable. That was a little treasure for me for many years. When I was eight and nine, that's why it was a treasure. The reason it stayed up on my dresser until I was 20 was because that was the year when I was eight that my mom and dad split up. And I didn't see my dad very often. And this day that he promised to spend the entire day with me at Knott's Berry Farm, not only was I excited about getting the gold but I loved my dad leaning over me with his arms around me, holding my hands on the pan and showing me with the great patience that he brought to golf and hunting and fishing, the process of waiting for the gold. 
And in some similar ways as an eight-year-old who was so afraid that my parents were split up, I was reducing it down to my love for my dad that I had in that moment. That's why I kept it for so long. My story ended differently than many. My mom and dad got back together again at the end of that year and stayed together, married for many more years until my father passed away. <clears throat> but that was the first time I can remember, both physically and metaphorically, having an experience with tearing away all the other stuff that I thought was important and being left what was, with what was most important. And in these verses, Paul is saying that in the chapter before, he gave the Corinthians a vision of what the church was supposed to be like, different from how they were behaving. That people with the gift of administration were gifted by God to take chaos and bring order out of it. And people with the gift of giving were motivated to give over and above what the rest of us give to help other people. And people with a gift of teaching should teach and prayer should pray. And then he says in this chapter, when all of those things pass away, what's left is love. Let's read verses eight, nine, and 10. I'll read it for you. Love never ends, Paul says. As for the gift of prophecy, that will pass away. For those of you that have the gift of tongues, that too will cease. For those of you that bring great knowledge to the church, that will pass away. We know right now only a partial glimpse, and we prophesy and we use our gifts only to a certain level, but when the perfect comes, when God comes, when we understand the irreducible center of God is love, the partial will pass away, and we will be left with what's most important. At the church that John and I were a part of in Chicago before we came to Menlo Park 16 years ago, um, I remember a day when I worked on staff at that church that was incredibly vivid. I remember earlier in the day, I was using my spiritual gifts. I led a meeting, I taught a class, and I was getting ready to leave home at about 5 o'clock. And because it was Chicago and it was 742 degrees below zero... I walked inside the church the whole way to get to the door nearest to my car. And on the way, I ran into a family, a mom and a dad, with two small children in tow that spoke very little English. And I used my broken Spanish from being an emergency room nurse and began to understand that they were looking for the office in our church where some of our staff worked to give out food vouchers and hotel vouchers. I was so proud that my church had an office like that. And I invited them to follow me, and I took them over to that office. And then I went home, got my car. And on the drive home, I was struck by how vivid that interaction was and how much more meaningful that five minutes was compared to the entire day when I had been working in the sweet spot of my spiritual giftedness. Why? Well, not because... I'm such an extraordinarily loving person because God gave me a moment to glimpse the power of love, the power of disadvantaging yourself for the sake of somebody else. It is the most wonderful thing in the world. And in that moment, I feel like God stripped away even my giftedness and said, all of that is going to pass away. But that moment you had with that family for five minutes brought more glory to me and more joy to you than the rest of your day at work. I remember that moment more vividly than all the sermons I ever gave at that church. Why? 
because I got to see the power of love in action. Paul is reminding us desperately to understand, and not just the church in Corinthians, but us, that love is what is remaining when everything else that you care so much about is gone. The second thing Paul is trying to get us to understand in this passage is that love is personal. Something happens uniquely in verse 11 that shows us this. Let me read you verse 11. Paul now says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I grew up, I gave away my childish ways. Why is that verse so critical? Paul uses for the first time in this passage the first person plural. Paul changes it from saying, do you understand what the spiritual gifts are? And do you understand what love is? To I. It's as though Paul is letting us in on the secret of let me show you my before and after picture. Let me remind you of what I was like before I understood this love and let me remind you what kind of person I have become who could pen the words of 1 Corinthians 13 to get us to understand the transformational power of love. In Acts chapter 7, when the early church was getting started, there was a saint named Stephen. Stephen gave a dramatic and moving sermon in the marketplace. It's one of the longest sermons recorded in the Bible. I think it's longer than anything Jesus ever preached, and I constantly remind my husband it was less than 30 minutes. It's a good thing to shoot for. In this sermon, he gives the arc of God in history over time, and he ends it with the power of Jesus. And then, as any good preacher does, at the end of his sermon, he brings it to the point of conviction. And he says to everybody who's listening to him, and that includes the religious leaders who it says were secretly instigating against him, stirring up the people and setting up false witnesses against Stephen. And after they listened to his entire sermon of the work of God over time that was so compelling, Stephen says directly to them, you stiff-necked people who resist the Holy Spirit, you must stop persecuting, and he calls them to repentance. They did not respond well to this call to repentance. In fact, it says when they heard these words, they became enraged. They ground their teeth at him. They cried out with a loud voice and plugged their ears as they rushed to him so they didn't have to listen to him anymore. They pulled him out of the city and stoned him. And then in the very next verse, in chapter 8, there was a shadowy figure watching all of this happening. And it says, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Saul, who became Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians 13. That's quite a transformation. The rest of the passage goes on to describe that Paul was ravaging the church that he was dragging men and women into the street and off to prison, that he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus. That was Saul, who became a man who could write all the beautiful words for us to understand what love is, what happened. He met Jesus. Not long after the description of what he was doing to persecute the followers of Jesus, he was alone on a road and heard an audible voice where Jesus said to him, why are you persecuting me? And there was a transaction between the two of them and Paul 
Saul for a moment lost his vision and had a transformation where he believed in Jesus. And over time, the disciples hesitatingly, for very good reasons, pulled him away into a home and took care of him until his sight was restored and then very carefully introduced him to the other disciples to consider the possibility that Jesus had so transformed this man that he would be invited in the ensuing chapters to join Barnabas and others and lead the first missionary trips outside of Jerusalem and Samaria to spread the gospel to the whole world. What changes somebody from Saul to Paul? It's this love he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. For, for Paul, this was not theoretical. It was not just supreme in a thought leadership way. It was thought leadership that changes who he was, and it did for him. It absolutely and utterly, compellingly changed him. And when you think about Acts chapter 8 and 9 and 10, and you read 1 Corinthians 13, you are in the presence of what's possible when somebody encounters this kind of earth-shattering, soul-changing love. And then Paul goes on to say that this love that I'm asking you to understand is not just supreme, which makes it most valuable and core. It's not just personal, but it's eternal. It is what we will go into eternity learning more and more and more about. And I would say to all of us who might believe that in some way we understand the love of God, the truth is we have no idea. And if God is saying it's going to take eternity for you to understand it, we can be humble enough to realize that we have a long way to go. In verse 12, Paul says this towards the end of the chapter. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, these great three, these amazing virtues and values. But the greatest of these, the one that lasts, is love. So what does that mean for our own journey to understand love? I think we need to go back and look at the life of Jesus. During the four Gospels, when Jesus was trying to not just teach us, but show us what it means to love, there are three distinctions, I think, that take love out of the category of just a good, warm feeling towards people that are like us. It takes it out of a hallmark moment and makes it actionable enough to change somebody like Saul to Paul. The first thing that Jesus did, which is so striking, when Jesus began his earthly ministry, he did not start by setting foot in the religious institutions. He did not start by going and finding the religious leaders and having conversations with them. He started speaking to and being with all of the people whom those religious leaders deemed to be marginalized and sinners. Jesus began on the edges. And Jesus said, the edge is the center. Those of you in the center are so mistaken. It got to the point where the religious leaders criticized by G Jesus by saying, isn't he the one that hangs out with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes? To which Jesus said, yes, that would be me. Why? Because that's how far the love of God goes. 
maybe a better way to say it is that's where the love of God starts. And I'm guessing if you're like me, for all of us in this room, we have a group of people who are in our minds the marginalized ones. I'm guessing it's different for each person. But who is that for you? Who is the kind of person in what condition? Fill in the blank for you that you consider on the margins. And perhaps God's call for you in the journey to understand love is to listen to them and see them and move towards them in the way that Jesus did. It wasn't just the marginalized that Jesus was sending a message to and about. It was also who he picked to be in his inner circle. Second thing he did was his choice of disciples was quite odd. Most of the rabbis would observe the young boys going to rabbinical school or to uh, school in the sanctuary in uh, where they would where the Pharisees would be teaching, and they would look for the cream of the crop. They would look in the synagogues for these young boys that were smart and bright, and they would invite them out of the school to shun the employment of their father, which is what most boys would do, and come to rabbi school. Every Jewish mother's dream, high prestige. It's not where Jesus went to build his inner circle. First of all, he invited Simon the Zealot and Matthew, the tax collector, to be in his inner circle. These were two men who were absolutely philosophically and ideologically opposed to each other. In this day and age, fill in the blank. He went to both of them and said, boys, you have nothing in common. In fact, you disagree on most everything. And if you put a Venn diagram down of everything where you're different and you find that little slice of center in the middle that's me, Jesus, that's all you need. You see, Simon the Zealot actually was attracted to join Jesus' tribe because he was convinced that if Jesus was a prophet or the Messiah, his intent was, his mission, was to overthrow the Roman government. Simon was a zealot. That's what he lived for. Matthew, the tax collector, was a fellow Jew who had sold out and begun to work for the Roman government, taxing his own people. These guys would be at the opposite end of a political rally. They would be hurling bad words and perhaps worse at each other. And Jesus intentionally brought them both into the inner circle because Jesus knew that the kind of love he made available was powerful enough to overcome those kinds of differences. Jesus wasn't done. Then he selects James and John which the New Testament calls sons of thunder, which would make you think that they are courageous men. Actually, the Greek word means sons of anger. He brought two brothers on his team that had anger management issues and a mother who followed them around and kept saying, Jesus, pay attention to my boys. He called Peter, who was probably the disciple who was publicly rebuked more than all the rest of the disciples put together, on his team and not only put him in his inner circle, but when it was time to scale this movement, gave the keys of the kingdom to Peter. And he invited Judas into his inner circle. Why? Because Jesus was trying to get us to understand that loving people that are just like you doesn't count at all. In fact, he said it pretty clearly in Luke chapter 6. What credit do you get? What good is it for you if you love people who are like you or lend people money who can repay it to you? 
Do not even the heathens do this. That's love 101. Jesus is inviting us to an uncommon kind of love that recognizes differences for sure, but deems them secondary or tertiary to the centrality and the supremacy of the kind of love that God offers us. And the third thing that Jesus did over and over again in his ministry to show us there is an uncommon understanding of love that I want to show you is his movement towards servanthood and suffering. Very often in the Gospels, Jesus worked so hard and spent so much time with people that it says sometimes the spirit went out of him. Sometimes he had to get on a boat and push it away and sleep. Sometimes he went missing and they couldn't find him because he was so drawn to servanthood as an expression of the center of the kind of love that God has for us, to disadvantage himself for the sake of another person, and to suffer in a multiplicity of ways. Andy Crouch was out here in the Bay Area about a month ago working with some leaders, and Andy probably is one of the preeminent writers and thinkers about the intersection of culture and Christianity. He said a lot of things that morning, but a couple of earworms that I'm still rolling over in my brain. He said in the early church, up until the year 300 when Constantine got a hold of it, the number one conversation that the church would have when they came together was how do we nobly endure suffering for the sake of the gospel? Andy went on to say, I believe in America we have lost our capacity to have that conversation. And instead, we spend the majority of our time talking about our comforts and our blessings. Not that there's anything wrong with those. But in the life of Jesus, he spoke much less about those things and much more about inviting us to share with him in his sufferings as a sign that we understood this kind of love. This kind of uncommon love that if it ever got released in a compelling way would change the world. In 1903, President Teddy Roosevelt, who was quite a character, saw for the first time the Grand Canyon. And I love in his journal, he wrote his response, I was completely gobsmacked by it. I just love that word. I think we should bring that word back. I don't even for sure know what it means. A couple of years ago, one of uh, my colleagues that I worked with had a son who was turning nine years old, and he decided for his son's birthday, he was going to take him away overnight to see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Early in the morning, right before the sun came up, they drove to the parking lot, and he leaned over in the car and said to his son, do you trust me? And I said it was a good thing his son was nine and not 14, because he probably would have gotten a very different answer, but his son said, of course, Dad. So he said, great, come on outside, keep your eyes closed, and hold my hand. Don't open your eyes until I tell you. And so he walked his son to the, close to the edge of the Grand Canyon and waited for that moment when the sun rays came up over the flat top of the Grand Canyon and began to flood with little rays the nooks and crannies of the canyon. He squeezed his son's hands and he said, go ahead and open your eyes. This is not a present the kid can take home and play with later. He said, for about 90 seconds, my son didn't say a word and then he squeezed my hand and looked up at me with tears in his eyes and he said, Dad, I had no idea. I had no idea. We have 
no idea of the kind of love that God is and that God has made available to us and that God encourages us by saying, hey guys, it's not only so good that you can't even comprehend it, it never ends. And maybe the very best we can do that's good enough is to find it for a minute, to grow in it, to build a little place in our soul where it lives that when we lose it, and we will, we can find our way back to it and sit there long enough to relearn it again and deepen it so the next time we lose it, it's a little easier to find. This kind of love that abides beyond even faith and hope and everything else is available to us and a permanent marker of those of us that follow Jesus to will the good of the other so that they too can see this love that changes us. Um, for those of you that are parents, you know that there comes a time as you raise your children uh, where they become your teachers as well. And for most of us, it comes soon when they're very little. But I've had a recent experience with that. I know some of you have heard our oldest daughter, Laura, who gave a sermon here. But two years ago, um, Laura, who struggles a lot with anxiety, went through with her husband three miscarriages in 10 months. It was devastating. As a parent, you can't fix it. You can't do anything but watch your child in so much pain. She became pregnant again with the fourth, uh, for the fourth time and had a really rough pregnancy. Good news is, chance is great. He just turned a year old. Story ends great. But in the middle of how hard it was, my daughter made three noble choices to go to the baby showers of her friends during the time when she was having a miscarriage or during the time when she was early pregnant with Chance but didn't know the outcome yet. And as a mom, I told her, baby, you don't have to do this. I wanted to protect her. And hear me well, sometimes we need to protect ourselves. Sometimes the world is so overwhelming, we can't. And that's what boundaries are for, and that's what pulling away is for, and we need that sometimes. But I watched my daughter do her own internal journey with God and say, I want to be the kind of person that can be happy when someone else is getting what I so desperately want. And I went from wanting to protect her to being very proud of her. But it goes way beyond her, doesn't it? It really goes to her ability to tap into the nature of the love of God, which makes you feel safe, makes you feel okay whatever life throws your way, makes you able to love and move towards people that you would rather not be around, and changes you from the inside out. Like Saul to Paul, like all of us, and the journey for our church to be the kind of place where individually, and collectively, that kind of love is emanating out of all seven of our campuses up and down the peninsula in a way that is undeniably true of God. Let's pray. God, for this word love that we think about, talk about, and think we understand, may you remind us daily we have no idea 
May you make us courageous and kind in our love, compassionate, empathetic, clear, strong, moving towards people, and finding it deep in our own soul. May part of the reason that we look forward to eternity be our ever-deepening, if minuscule, understanding of your nature and this kind of love. And most of all, we are grateful for the expression of love in the form of your son, Jesus, to whom we look to understand in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I hope that that message was inspiring and challenging and will cause you to look at Jesus a little bit differently. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you'd like to stay tuned with us, then please follow us on social media and have a wonderful week. We'll see you next week.